Good morning again. You know, it's, <clears throat> it's always an honor and a privilege to get to share with this church family, and I'm excited this morning to walk through part of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And, and it's a little bit different to only get a chunk of it. Um, normally, you kind of work through the whole thing over a series of time, but uh, I'm, I'm excited just to look at a, a section of it this morning. And, and so this, what we know is the Sermon on the Mount. It takes up chapters 5 through 7 in the book of Matthew, and it really gives us a good look at Jesus' heart for people, and it casts a vision for how it looks to live as a kingdom person, a citizen in the kingdom of God. And in this particular stretch of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be looking at, Jesus offers some new teaching on how the people of Israel should follow some of God's old, well-known commands. And you know, it's not unreasonable in this section of the Sermon on the Mount to say that Jesus raises the bar on these commands, and he sets a higher standard. But I wonder if it's a more accurate characterization of what Jesus is doing to say that he's offering a means for reorientation. So that's, that's kind of the way we'll be looking at it this morning. Jesus gives us a new way of understanding God's commandments that help us to experience the wholeness that they were always meant to bring into our lives. And I think this is, this is just such a critical concept for us to engage, especially in our current moment. So we'll think about that this morning. And you know what? So about a month ago, I I had the privilege of spending a week in Chicago with a small group of folks here from Southside, and we partnered with a ministry program there in Chicago called Bridge Builders. And we spent a good portion of our time out there working at an overextended, underfunded elementary school in in the north side of Chicago. And and we got to do a pretty good amount of painting. And man, let me just say, y'all really stepped up big time to provide us with lots and lots of painting supplies, and it was a real honor for us to roll in there on Southside's behalf and show the way that you responded to meet their need. That was, that was really cool. We also spent a fair amount of our time on that trip learning about the neighborhood where Bridge Builders is intentionally located, and we learned a lot about the social issues that, that are kind of working against them on the south side of Chicago, and it was pretty eye-opening to see... <clears throat> Some of the ways that the structure of the city, like the way Chicago has been systematically built, it was pretty eye-opening to see some of the ways that its structure was intentionally set up to actually separate people of color and put them at a disadvantage. And and the level of poverty in, in the part of the city we were in, it was pretty staggering. And the folks at Bridge Builders, they did a really good job of helping us to see some of the root causes of that, that that really went into action a long time ago. But their effects today are alive and well. And they, they shape people's attitudes and outlooks. So that's one thing. And I think over time, our attitudes and outlooks can be shaped by things of the world. And then on another side of things, there is our precious, almost two-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth is currently helping me and Danielle understand that sin does not have to be learned. (laughs) She knows the things that she's not supposed to do, and very often those are the things that she most wants to do. I'm sure you parents 
can relate. And for us right now, meal times in particular are a big struggle because when she's done, in, instead of just saying all done or leaving her food alone, like she wants to throw everything on the floor that she can as quickly as she can. And you know, like, <laughs> she is such a sweet child. She is such a joyful child. But she will look right at you and take that last sip of milk and throw it on the floor as quickly as she can. And I'm used to it. Like, I'm ready for it. I'm waiting for it. And sometimes I can stop her, but most of the time she still gets away with it. She's just really mastered the the compact motion of just sip and throw, and it's hard to catch it. And, you know, we, we have these sippy cups that, that do a great job of keeping her from making a mess when she's taking a drink. And a lot of people see these sippy cups and, and remark it how great they must be because they're spill-proof. And let me just say, they are not spill-proof. I, trust me, they're not spill-proof. Elizabeth has debunked that theory. Maybe she has a future with myth busters. I don't know. But I guess my point on that is that we have a lot of intrinsic and extrinsic factors working against us and having a robust understanding of God's kingdom. We don't have to learn sin. It, it comes pretty naturally to us. But there's also sin in the world that shapes us over time, that comes from outside of us. And sin and the ways of the world, they cloud our vision, they cloud our judgment, and they get in the way of our feeling and our trusting and our knowing that the kingdom of God is actually at hand, as Jesus says that it is. And you know, I think right now, unlike in any other time in the history of the world before now, we are constantly bombarded with information that also seeks to shape us and orient us. And we need a better way, and Jesus provides it. So this morning, we're stepping into the tail end of a series of Jesus' teachings in which he shares a few examples of teachings that had been passed on from generation to generation in Israel, and Jesus offers a fresh perspective on these teachings. <clears throat> and Jesus' intent here, it's not to tweak a handful of customs and laws that need tweaking. His intent is to introduce a pattern. He's introducing a means to reorientation that will guide us into the way of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus has brought near to us, the kingdom that he's building on earth by his Spirit's work through his people. And so there are a few principles that present themselves here in Jesus' teaching, and we're going to look at those principles. And the very first one here is that Jesus sets standards at the heart level. You know, up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already spoken to how God makes us to be people of mercy. God makes us to be pure in heart. He makes us to be peacemakers. He makes us to be resilient in the face of persecution. He makes us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But we're over here, and we get ourselves caught up on technicalities so easily. And you know, if, if we go back to this example with Elizabeth, instead of the deliciousness and nutritiousness of milk, instead of enjoying those things, instead of being thankful for the milk that we've been given, instead of thinking about who we could bless by sharing the milk we've been given, we're over here thinking about whether the satisfaction of throwing down our milk cup is worth the time out that we'll get as punishment. And obviously, that's a pretty trite example. And Jesus, he offers us some more substantial ones. And if we look really quickly at some of the things he's mentioned, 
he talks about murder, and, and he changes the way we think about it. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He talks about adultery, and he changes the way that we think about it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he gives us a pretty extreme example here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And so we start to see here a little bit with Jesus' intentionally extreme language. He's really getting at something else. He's, He's wanting us to root out the cause of sin. As we keep going... He, he talks about divorce, and instead of hearing it was said that if anyone divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, Jesus, again, changes the way we think about it. He says, don't divorce, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Talking about oaths, instead of you shall not swear falsely, he says don't take an oath at all. Rather, keep your words so well that swearing it is unnecessary. One more here. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was a command that was given to the judges and the officials of Israel to execute justice. But somewhere along the way, um, everyone wanted to take this command into their own hands and, and take justice into their own hands. And Jesus, again, changes the way that we think about it. And, and he, he shows us how we should fiercely deny the impulse to take revenge because we can trust God to take revenge. We need to trust God to take revenge. And so you kind of see a pattern here. He's changing the way we think about things. He's taking it to the heart level so that we might root out the cause of sin. And so we, we have to recognize here that we can't just ask ourselves whether we're sinning. We must also ask what makes us want to sin. Because when we're caught up in a code and not a kingdom, what we end up getting is a law degree instead of a life. And by simply seeking to avoid sin, we miss out on knowing the freedom from sin that Jesus offers us. And inevitably, when we go down that road, we end up manipulating and distorting the law to suit our selfish purposes, which is what we see happening in this part of the passage that we're going to look at most closely this morning. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And if this doesn't sound like something God would say, it's because he doesn't. We know that love your neighbor and hate your enemy isn't an actual command from God, right? John Stott, he, he describes this version of the law as a blatant perversion of the law because of how it narrows both the standard of the law and its objects. Because the original standard of the law was that we are to love others as we love ourselves, which is a naturally high bar, but that gets omitted. Not only that, but the recipients of our love, our neighbors, 
they were originally cast in an intentionally broad category. Jesus, you know, he, he, he upholds the broadness of that category when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus shows that he's not concerned with saying anything that would narrow the category of neighbor. Jesus is concerned with calling all of us to be good neighbors, simply be good neighbors. And so for the Israelites to have excluded enemies from the category of neighbors was not only beyond their authority, it was just plain wrong. <clears throat> and what's even more wrong is for them to have added an assumed but highly agreeable natural compliment, which is hate your enemy. And that's deeply problematic because the practice of hate has no place in the kingdom of heaven. Preaching on, on this passage about loving our enemies, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, hate destroys a man's sense of values and his objectivity. It causes him to describe the beautiful as ugly and the ugly as beautiful and to confuse the true with the false and the false with the true. We have to recognize that hate, however unfortunately natural it may be to us, hate does no good in our dealings with enemies. It only compounds sin, corrupts us, and confuses Instead, when it comes to those who would inflict evil upon us, Dr. King goes on to say, we never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. We get to the root cause. And yet, the practice of enemy hate was so easily added and accepted into the telling of God's law. And, and we have to recognize here, it's just amazing how capable we can be of justifying and even sanctifying things that directly contradict God's nature and God's commands for his people. Sky Jatani says about this, very often what gets Christians into trouble is not holding to God's commands, but stridently holding to the assumptions we've inferred from God's commands. And so... Jesus calls us out, and he sets the record straight on this one. And he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is heaven. And these words, being sons of your Father who is in heaven, that line would have taken listeners' thoughts back to something that Jesus had just mentioned earlier, which we see in Matthew 5, 9 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so we see that if we're intent on taking matters into our own hands, hatred will likely become a fruit of our spirit as we navigate difficulties with other people. But if we are intent on living as children of our Father in heaven, we're going to trust his lordship over vengeance, and we'll find that the heart of the matter in our relationships with others, especially enemies, is to pursue harmony with them as well as we're able to. And that brings us to the second matter of reorienta reorientation that Jesus introduces here. Jesus forces us to factor others into the righteousness formula. And you know, this is a really important one for us because as individualism has embedded itself more and more deeply into our cultural psyche. The idea that the only thing I need to do is worry about my personal relationship with Jesus. That's become more and more prominent. And, and you know, I, I, I should say here, it's been a really helpful 
and healthy rule of thumb for me to worry about things that fall into the realm of my control. I've given advice to a lot of people to do the same, but we're talking about something a little bit different here. In our many dealings with people, Jesus just doesn't let us off the hook that easily. He, bro- he casts a broader and a higher vision for how his kingdom works, and it requires a certain level of concern for the welfare of others. I remember Barrett preaching through the entire Sermon on the Mount several years ago, and, and one, of the, one of the lines that was really helpful to me as he did that was to say that we are blessed to be a blessing. We're blessed to be a blessing. And this gives us a completely different orientation in our life with other people. And so as, as we look back at the examples Jesus has given from other laws, we can see a little bit about what it means to put this into practice. So going back to um, the way Jesus addresses the law to not kill, he also says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. And so we see Jesus makes the point here that others' anger towards us is indeed our problem. Because peacemaking is hard. We see in Jesus' handling of divorce. I'm in in chapter 5, verse 32 here. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And, And so we see the effects of the stain of sin here. Our breaking of covenants, it leaves the stain of sin on those whom we reject and those with whom they form new covenants. Sin is pervasive, and, and we, we have some responsibility for the effects of our sin on other people. We see in Jesus' Jesus's handling of an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth that as we leave revenge in God's rightful and overwhelmingly capable hands, What we have to do, according to Jesus, is go above and beyond to bless those who would take from us or wrong us. And as early church father Augustine points out, many have learned to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. That that is just a higher standard that Jesus sets for us. The way of Jesus is high, and it's bigger than any one of us. And so the question becomes, how can we love those who would harm us? And this is what Jesus tells us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We have to love and pray for those who would oppose us and mistreat us. And a really helpful definition of agape love for me has been simply to seek one's highest good. When we love others, we want what is best for them. And, you know, for most of my life, I've been blessed enough to say that I wouldn't really call much of anyone my enemy. (laughs) Man, what could have increased our opportunity for enemy-making more than the advent of the Internet and social media? It's so much easier to, to feel enmity towards others because of the way that we 
we are exposed to others online, the way that we interact with others online. And, you know, maybe, I, I would say in this room, most of us do a pretty good job of not getting sucked into the mudslinging. But if I'm honest about myself, there are a lot of people on the Internet whom I fail to view as image bearers of the one true God and creator. I do not love them well. <clears throat> and so it's critical. It's critical for us to remember that seeking others' greatest good is an essential element of emulating Christ. And Jesus sets the perfect example for us. You know, enmity, Paul, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, enmity was the status of our relationship with Jesus when he died for us on the cross. And while Jesus' physical suffering was at its very worst, what did Jesus do? He prayed for his enemies. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And John Stott says about this, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of our prayer for our enemies? We just have to recognize that the way of the kingdom of God is to pray that our Heavenly Father might win our enemies over to friendship just like he did with us. Jesus gives us an example of how God also models this. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. One way we, we come to define what's being described here is common grace. God's common grace it's a staple of his kindness to all humanity, indiscriminately. And likewise, loving others as we love ourselves and praying for them is a staple of our minimum kindness to all humanity. Lastly, in case it's not clear from how otherworldly Jesus' take is on heart matters and love for others, let's recognize together that Jesus turns the ways of the world upside down. And, you know, contrast is one of the major devices that Jesus uses to teach the ways of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. We're children of an otherworldly God, and so it only makes sense that his ways are not of this world. Jesus says in, in this passage, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In the next few chapters, the last two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, no fewer than eight more times, Jesus contrasts the way of his followers and the ways of others. He mentions hypocrites. He mentions Gentiles. He mentions false prophets, those who don't do the will of the Father and those who hear Jesus' words but don't do them. And Jesus contrasts the ways of his people with all those other people. And the message is clear. Jesus' people are to be different. So if our perspectives on all manner of topics align too neatly with those coming out of our culture, we can be all but guaranteed that they're not in alignment with Christ and his kingdom. John Stott says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, our Christian calling is to imitate not the world, but the Father. And it is by this imitation of him that the Christian counterculture becomes visible. And this is so critical 
for us to recognize because we have all kinds of you have heard that it was said. The world is trying to say all kinds of things to us that shape us and orient us. And so the question becomes, how do we look to the Lord to offer something different and something good in the complex issues that our society gets wrong over and over again? How do we deal with matters of race, with matters of violence and nationalism and and enabling others? How do we navigate living and dying through a pandemic together? College students, let me ask you, how, how do you decide who to date? How do you decide how to date? How do you decide how to budget time and money? What determines your ethics on sexuality? What place is alcohol going to have in your life? What part does your work play in living out your identity? What place is God's church going to have in your life? There's just not time to get into all of it. But Jesus gives us a pattern here that's really helpful. Paul talks in Colossians 2 about how all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And we just have to recognize that we're inundated with plausible arguments, and a lot of them offer a reasonable dose of truth or at least some kind of sense. But very few of them reflect Jesus' love and wisdom. In fact, all perspectives, all perspectives out of politics, patriotism, news, social media, pop culture, you name it, all of them, they fall short of the ways of the kingdom of God, and they're often at odds with it. It's good to know that it's only because of God's steadfast love for us that we can come to receive his wisdom and knowledge through Christ. And that's where Jesus leaves us. It's only because of how freely God offers his love to us that we can find anything attainable in this last line from Jesus. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, (laughs) I, I have to admit, the thing that most drew me to this passage for this morning was wanting to talk about our many, you have heard that it was said. And, and I, I think about how, as America's collective temperature has steadily risen over the past several years, it's become painfully clear that we're just fully submerged in bad information, bad advice, and bad ideology. And it's critical that we look to the Lord for wisdom and guidance rather than subscribe to the infinite but infinitely inferior ideas that surround us and seek to coerce us into submission, if not outright agreement. That's what I felt convicted to talk about. But faithfulness to this passage, as God's given it to us, requires more than just calling out the bad. Faithfulness to this passage, as God's given it to us, requires that we look to God and God alone to set the standard. And the standard is God's perfect love. And again, I remember Barrett preaching on this passage years ago and sharing that the call of this verse is not to be perfect morally, but to love completely. According to scholars, the the Aramaic word Jesus is likely to have used here that we get perfect out of, it it means all-embracing. And it's deeply connected to our having a sense of wholeness. You know, so we've, we've dipped our toes this morning into the vast waters of how Jesus can give us a better head and heart perspective on any number of issues. But all things considered, 
I think if we could devote ourselves to knowing and practicing God's all-embracing love, we'd be better off than we could imagine. And, and I'm just really thankful to say that the Lord was kind enough and good enough to start to bring this truth to life in my heart during my years here as a college student, and it, it dramatically altered my career path. You know, I had no plans to end up here in full-time ministry, and I never saw myself here preaching occasionally to the church family that took me in and showed me God's love so well. It's just been a really sweet gift to stumble my way into the Lord's ministry as a career, and, and Danielle and I love to spend time with students and watch the Lord work in their lives. And I just want to say this morning, for any college students who are hearing this, we'd be honored if you gave us the chance to walk alongside you. Um, I want to close just by sharing one more line from Martin Luther King Jr. When he, when he preached on this passage, um, he, he spoke a pretty long paragraph that I'm not going to share in its entirety, but it, it speaks to the ability of the Christian in Christ to endure suffering for the good of others. And at the very end of it, he says, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. I love that. (laughs) So you've heard it said here, there is double victory to be had, and it comes only through the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we, we pray a simple prayer this morning, and we simply ask, we simply ask that you renew our hearts, that you incline our hearts to you. We ask that you incline our hearts to others and seek their well-being. And we ask that you might turn our ways upside down in your perfect love. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's continue in worship. Let's stand.